The Lord is in our midst today. He's with us. Where is Christ today? Right here in the middle of us today. And we're very thankful. Grateful to see everybody here this morning once again. And now it's time for us to turn our attention to the Word of God. And so if you have a copy of the Bible with you, we'll have words on the screen. There's also a sermon guide in your um, worship bulletin this morning. We're in John chapter 14. And so be finding the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very familiar passage of scriptures. We deal with the subject today, the way home. I want to spend a few minutes helping us all to make sure we understand how to find our way home. Home is one of the most precious concepts in every nation of the world. Everybody within the sound of my voice knows exactly what I'm talking about when I mention the word home. We all have a home, and it's something that's very dear to us, so much so that when we're away from home for an extended period of time, we often couch it in terms of an illness. We call it homesickness. And those of us that have ever been homesick, I've made four major moves in my life, and I've had homesickness with every single one of them. And it's a terrible thing and takes a good while to get over. We love home, and even those who maybe don't come from a healthy or a balanced home environment, that's what they want more than anything else in life, or it's what they wish they would have had. And there's nothing worse than finding yourself separated from home. We think of our military, our men and women in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard. I was talking with a military father before the 8 o'clock service this morning who came up to me before we started and said, look, my son is in a very dangerous part of the world, and he told me where that son was. He's flying missions every day. When you think about him, would you pray for him? He's ready to come home, that young man is, and Daddy is surely ready to receive him because there's nothing worse than uh, not being able to be where you want to be, and for most people, that's home. In fact, it's a major theme in the entertainment industry. Let's do a little entertainment pop quiz this morning. I'm going to rattle off a list of TV shows or movies, and you tell me what they all have in common. Are you ready? The Wizard of Oz, okay? Gilligan's Island. Can I have an amen this morning? All right. Lost in Space. Danger, Will Robinson. It's coming back on Netflix, brand new, in about two weeks, right? Uh, How about Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks? The Martian with Matt Damon. What do all those have in common? People are lost, and they're trying to figure out how to get back home, and they're having a tough time doing it. Speaking of lost, how about the television series Lost? I nearly lost my mind. <laughs> Binge watching, lost, no resolution for years and years, and that was back before the days where you could stream it. And so we would have to, they they knew me by name at Blockbuster because I was coming in there as fast as I could, exchanging four disc packs of Lost. And we would be up half the night because we couldn't stop watching, and those people, I don't know, they ever did make it home. Irreconcilable, irresolvable. It's terrible to be lost and far from home and not know how you're going to get back. And one of the blessings of the Bible is that it's very clear 
how to find your way home. The Bible teaches us that we can know that we, one, have a home. It's where the Lord is. And it teaches us very clearly how to get there if we want to. Not difficult to find at all the way home. The journey can be dangerous, yeah. Filled with terrible situations along the way, dangers, difficulties. But the way itself is not hard to find at all. And this is what Jesus was talking about the night before he died. Of all things, he's gathered with his disciples and he's showing them and us by extension that we have a home and he wants us to know how to get there. John chapter 14, beginning in verse number one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's, what? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said unto him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can we read that last verse out loud together, verse 6? Everybody together. Jesus said to him, I am the, and the, and the, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is an important conversation that ends right there, uh, really, in terms of this section anyway, with one of the most controversial, outrageous statements that Jesus ever makes about himself anywhere in the Bible. It's certainly a very thought-provoking thing that's debated in churches today, and it's debated out on the streets this morning. It's the night before his death, and Jesus is in a borrowed upper room together with his disciples. Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane after what takes place here in this upper room. And then he's going to be put on trial, and the next day, which would have been Friday, he's going to be raised at Golgotha to die on a cross. And as he's gathered together here in this upper room, they have taken the final Passover meal that they would share together. It's called the Last Supper. And so it's in this setting, uh, as they're sharing this meal together, that Jesus is continuing to teach these 12 disciples who'd been around him now for three years. They'd attached themselves to him. Jesus had taught them many things about the kingdom of God and what was going to happen. And particularly over the last 18 months or so, Jesus had been preparing them that they're working their way to Jerusalem and bad things were going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. He would be arrested, he would suffer, and he would die. Now we're in this upper room and all of that is literally right at the forefront of preparing to happen. And yet we're learning that all of that teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples over the previous year and a half evidently went right over those boys' heads. Because you see, they didn't want to hear anything about a Messiah who suffered and died. 
That's not what they had come to understand the role of the Messiah to be. Of course, the Jews in Jerusalem were living under Roman occupation. Jerusalem was occupied by Rome. Tiberius was the Caesar of Rome at the time. And Jerusalem, as well as the entire land of Israel, as well as most of the world as it was known at that time, was under Roman tyranny and Roman occupation. So most Jews thought when the Messiah comes, he's going to take care of that mess. He's going to come as a military political figure, wearing a battle helmet, riding a white stallion, carrying a sword in his hand. He's going to lead the nation of Israel to rise up and overthrow the Roman oppressors and lead the nation of Israel back to a time of dominance, world dominance and strength, such that the nation had not seen since the days of King David and King Solomon centuries and centuries before. That's the kind of Messiah they thought Jesus was going to be. And so as Jesus over the previous 18 months had been teaching them, guys, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die because your greatest enemy is not Tiberius Caesar. Your greatest enemy is not the Roman military industrial complex. Your greatest enemy has nothing to do with Rome and has nothing to do with oppressors. Your greatest enemy is sin. And I've come to kick it in the teeth, that enemy, over which no human has any control whatsoever. Therefore, because my enemy is different than your enemy, it has to be faced in a different way. It does not require military conquest. It's not a matter of political exigency. I have to die. I'm the sinless son of God that the Father has sent to bear the sins of the world and for your sin to be forgiven, for you to find your way home, the home that God created you to enjoy. I have to die. And so it's here in the upper room Jesus refreshes that teaching. And it explains why he begins the way he does. Let not your hearts be troubled, because theirs was. They were all nervous and twitchery, all anxious. We've left everything to follow you. Now you're talking about leaving us and dying. What in the world is that all about? Well, he makes it clear that a part of that is the Father's way of paving the way for them and all of us to find our way home. He looks at his disciples here in verse 2 and he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, what was this place Jesus was preparing to go? Well, he was preparing to go back to where he was before he came to earth in the first place the night he was born in Bethlehem. He was going back to the place he identified as he was dying on the cross as paradise. We call it what? Heaven. That's where he was going. That's home. And that's where he was going to go to start the work of preparation. So one thing we can know today, you know, the thing about it is the Bible doesn't give one word of explanation about what that work of preparation looks like. Is Jesus hammering nails? Is he drawing architectural blueprints? We don't know. He doesn't say. He just says he's going to prepare. But one thing that we can know, you cannot prepare a future place if you're very dead. 
And so it's a reminder that Jesus lives today. He's a living Lord. He's gone back to the Father. And he's not just sitting around on a throne eating grapes that servants are bringing to him. He's a working risen Savior. Amen. He's engaged and he's involved and he's preparing what can be your future home. And one of the things about it that he says here, it'll never run out of room. In my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. How many have you ever been to the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina? Anybody ever been there? Man, you ought to go there. It's a great go-to place. Uh, George Vanderbilt, the son of the railroad magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt, and the Vanderbilts were worth billions of dollars back in the 1800s. You couldn't even count that much money today. So they had it. Well, he wanted what he called a little cozy mountain retreat. Yeah, you can tell who's been there, right? That's the way George Vanderbilt described it, a little cozy mountain retreat. So he buys up 7,000 acres of land. Yeah, that's what I said, man. I just, just, words don't even do it justice, man. You just have to whistle. 7,000 acres, and then he begins to build his cottage. You know how big it is? 180,000 square feet, almost as big as some of y'all's houses here in Pensacola. 180,000 square feet, 250 rooms, 43 bathrooms. Can I have an amen this morning? There's more bathrooms than we have at Hillcrest. We don't have 43 bathrooms in this big building. And so, man, you're never too far in case of emergency. Amen. I'm telling you, though, I remember being in that house like being in Mammoth Cave. If they had, if they had cut the lights out when I was in the bowels of that house and everybody would scattered, I'd still be trying to find my way out of that place. That's one big honking house, right? But it's just about the size of a grain of sand when it comes to heaven. Amen. In my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. You know, when Jesus was born, when he came to earth the first time, he didn't find a place like that. In fact, there was no room for Christ when he came. They went to one inn after another, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph of Nazareth did, knocking on doors, and they got the same answer every time. No room, no room, no room, said the men in Bethlehem. And Jesus is making it his eternal mission in life, his resurrected Lord, to make sure that what happened to him never happens to you. Never run out of room in this wonderful eternal place we call home. And that's really good news because the fact of the matter is we're all truthful today. All of us have a longing for home, not just home here. I went back to, I told the church last Sunday, I went back to see my mother a couple of weeks ago, Nashville, Tennessee. My mother last year celebrated 50 years living in the same house. Moved into that house when I was four years old. 50 years in the same home. And so you can imagine, man, my mind is just, when I pull into that driveway, my mind is just flooded with memories. And I think about it often. I love to go back there and often long to go back there. But every single one of us, God implants within us a longing for the home that he's preparing for us. You have a longing from God. This is why everybody worships something. 
Everybody. You may choose not to worship the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read about a moment ago. You may choose to reject him. You might even say that you don't think he even exists, and you're free and you are free to do that. You have the right to do that. But that doesn't mean you're not going to worship. Even atheists worship something. Can I have an amen this morning? You'll fashion a golden calf and you'll bow down before it. It might be your money. Might be your home. Might be your vacation home. Might be golf. Might be fishing. Might be some woman somewhere. Might be a man somewhere. You're going to worship something. Because God has wired that into your personality. You're created, the Bible says, in the image of God. It's what distinguishes you from every other creature that's ever made. No tiger, no kitty cat, no puppy dog, no bird of the air or fish of the sea is created in the image of God. Only human beings, the Bible says, are created in the image of God. That's what makes us unique. And a part of being created in the image of God is this connectedness to God that draws us to him. And it's why everybody worships something. Because it's part of having the character of God on the inside of you. God wires us to worship him. But sin has entered the picture, and sin corrupts all of that. So that we reject God oftentimes and we suppress the truth. We push it back in the box and close the lid. And then we go on about our business of building golden calves and worshiping them because we think it's more fun at the time to do it. So we all have this incredible longing for home. But the problem is sin has separated us from God and it's resulted in a condition of spiritual homelessness. We live in a town and most cities in the United States are just like ours. We've got homeless people. We drive by them multiple times every day and it's a terrible thing to be homeless. We pass them physically up and down the streets of our city. But even more than that, the world is full of people too innumerable to even count that are spiritually homeless because they are not connected to God. They're spiritually lost and they need to be saved. Far from God, far from home. And the end result is homelessness. Back in 2008 when the housing bubble burst and all of your retirement portfolios took a nosedive that took about three years to recover, Worst financial mess in America since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Foreclosure rate on single-family dwellings were at an all-time high in 2008, 2009. People who'd been told, borrow as much as you can, finance it as long as you can, were finding themselves literally on the street with nowhere to go like we've never seen in our country before. And people, I think, are afraid of that. Of that. I think if you ask most people, what are you most afraid of if they're honest People are afraid. They're all kind of phobias, right? Fear of heights, fear of spiders, fear of snakes. Can I have an amen on the snake part? Man alive. We fear all these kind of things. My brother was a United States Marine. Passes out cold at the sight of a doctor's needle. Guy ain't scared of anything. He's scared of needles. I think the most common fear among people today is the fear of dying. No question about it, fear of death. But I think also probably high on the list of most people would be fear of being homeless. I mean, I've seen people nodding their heads all over the place. 
Those of you that are security-minded, I mean, this fear of losing hearth and home and the warmth and the tenderness and the affection that we associate with home, man, that would be among the worst things. That, but here's the thing, apart from a relationship with God to Jesus Christ, you're already homeless. And you're trying to fill all of these needs with other things that make you smile for a moment, but then go away when the new wears off. When the new wears off, then what? See, God has created that longing for home to be filled with himself, a personal relationship with God for which we were created, but sin messed it up in the Garden of Eden. And finding your way home is something that God wants all of us to do. And before you can find your way home, you have to know what caused you to be lost, and it's sin. You know, the most popular story that Jesus ever told is a story about a homeless young man Isn't that crazy? I'm telling you, it draws us to that because we don't like to see anybody homeless. We want Gilligan to get home. We want the the guy on Mars to get home. We want Apollo 13 crew to get back. And here we have this story about a prodigal son who has wandered far from his home. And the Bible has a wonderful statement about him. He had all this money that his father willingly gave him early inheritance and he went through it like a hot knife through butter and the Bible says it's one of the most poignant statements in the Bible after he had spent all he began to be in want that's what happens to us we go through all this stuff have everything money can buy still not satisfied still got to have the flashiest still got to have the newest still got to have the shiniest it's not good enough after he'd spent all he began to be in want and that man ended up penniless and homeless, dancing a two-step in the mud vats with hogs, feeding them carob pods. That's a Jewish boy. It's a picture of how far he had fallen. He can't get in any worse condition than what he's in. A Jewish boy feeding hogs for a living? It's bad. And he determines, I don't have to stay here. It's the smartest thing some people in this room can do today is to realize you don't have to stay in the mess that you're in. There is a father. That boy had a father. And the young man decided, I'm going to go home and run the risk. I may end up a slave in that house the rest of my life, but it's better than being in the mud with pigs. And so he decides to go home. And what does he find? He finds a father who'd been waiting for him, a father who'd never rested while he was away, a father who saw him coming from afar off, who gets up and runs to him as fast as he can, a father that greets him with a welcoming embrace, who kisses his face with these wet, sloppy kisses, and then throws the mother of all parties for him, killing the fatted calf, and said, let's rejoice, because this son of mine, who was once lost, has now been what? He's come home. And that's what God wants for your life and mine, more than anything else this side of heaven. You have to get victory over sin, though, because it's sin that caused you to be lost. Sin that caused you to be far from home. The Bible says it infects all of us. For all have what? Sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned his own way. Romans 3, there is none that does good. No, not even one. None who seeks after God, not even one. 
That's just the Bible's way of helping us to understand what the prodigal son discovered by experience. Namely, we are homeless apart from Jesus. And there's always an emptiness when you're away from the Father. But the good news is, and this is the power of the gospel, that there is good news, and the good news is found in the reality that Jesus, even though he died and was buried in a cold rock tomb and sealed with a stone, that the stone has been rolled away. And there is light radiating now out of that empty tomb. And the light radiating out of that previously dark tomb serves as a beacon, as a lighthouse to guide us back to where Jesus is so that we can understand that the Savior is no longer dead but is alive. He's risen from the dead and he's sending out a transmission device that basically says, I am not dead, I'm alive and I'm preparing a place for you and I'm extending nail-scarred hands in your direction bidding you come unto me and find rest that's the message of Easter and it's why the gospel is such good news the empty tomb is an open door inviting us to come and experience the power and the eternity of the risen Christ Jesus came for two purposes the Bible says he came to save us from sin 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he came secondly to guide us home. Jesus not only tells us the way here, he makes it clear that he himself becomes the way. Brad Woods and I used to live back in Missouri and no GPS is back in the day. Can you even remember that far back? How did we survive to 2018? Man, you had to have a road map, and where we lived, a road map didn't help you all that much. People lived down in hills and hollers. I mean, I lived in a place where a lot of people had on a big old oak tree, they had like a pointed wooden sign with their name on it telling you to go this direction, this direction, or this direction. So I had a guy stop at our church one day. He'd been driving all over the place, and he said, I'm trying to find this address. Do you know where this is? I said, yeah, I know where it is, but I don't know that you can get here, there from here without a helicopter. And he said, really? And I said, no, not really, but it's hard to find. So I started to explain it, and his eyes started doing that. And I realized pretty quick, words are not enough in this case. So I looked at him. I said, wait a minute. Here's the thing. My car's right over here. Let me go get my keys, and I'm going to take you there. You just lock in behind me. And so I did. I got in the car, and I drove. We went down hills and hollers, and finally got him to where he needed to be. In that instance, I not only told him the way, I became the way. Okay? That's what Jesus came to do. Not just to show you a way, not just to give you a road map. He says here that Jesus actually becomes the way. And this is why it's so important. How do you find your way home? You find your way home by following Jesus Christ. Finding your way home means finding Jesus and following him. Here's what he says in verse 6. One more time. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Very controversial statement in an age of diversity and pluralism where everybody wants a choice, everybody wants a cafeteria plan, 
We want to do it yourself, have it your way, build it your way, right? Jesus said, here's the deal. There's only one way. You say, well, that's not fair. Let me tell you, don't, when it comes to your future, and your, don't you want to be absolutely certain when it comes to knowing the right direction to get somewhere? Man, if that guy had stopped and asked me for directions and I were to say, well, there's four or five ways to get there, and I start rambling all these different possibilities... No, just tell me one way to get there. Tell me the most direct way there. There's only one way to find your way to the eternal home. And Jesus makes it clear it's through him. He becomes the way. Why? Because he's the son of God. He died on the cross in your place. He became the sin bearer. And the Bible makes it clear because of who he is and because of what he's done and because of his resurrection from the dead, which vindicates everything. See, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, it doesn't matter. Then you just create your own way to get to God if there is a God. It's because he's risen from the dead that this statement in John 6 even makes sense. When we recognize that Christ is risen from the dead, then we nod and said, well, yeah, I guess so. He is the way, and he's proven it. He is the life, and he's shown it. He is the truth because he demonstrated it. He's not dead. He is alive, and he's come to extend a hand to us to guide us where God wants us to be. 1 Peter 3.18 is the gold standard. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Watch this. That he might what? Say it out loud. That he might that he might what? That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'm telling you, only a living Lord can bring you to God. History is filled with great leaders. I love to read biographies by great men and women. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Caesar, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Dwight Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur, I mean, and everybody in between. Great leaders, wonderful leaders, leaders that make a difference. You know what all those guys have in common today? They're all dead. They're gone. Their life really is only valuable because of what they mean to history. They're dead and they're not coming back, and most people don't even think about them anymore. They have no influence over anybody. That's true with the religious leaders of the day as well, whether they be Buddha or Mohammed or Joseph Smith or Gandhi or any of these great modern leaders like L. Ron Hubbard or whatever. Those guys have one thing in common as well. They're just as dead. And none of their followers would ever point to them and say that they were alive. That's not, in fact, we know where many of them are buried. Their tombs have become shrines. But not so the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone of all the leaders in history has demonstrated his eternal and lasting influence and his viability as an everlasting guide to take us from where we are now to where we can be for all of eternity. And he's demonstrated that through one thing and one thing alone. He is not there in the tomb anymore. He is risen from the dead. He is alive today. He is working in heaven. And one day he will come again and receive us unto himself that where he is, there we may be ever 
lastingly forever with him. And therefore, we of all people on the planet have more to celebrate, more to rejoice about, more to hope in, more to look forward to than anybody else on the planet. Why? Because we have a living Savior. who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to take you by the hand and pull you out of your homeless condition and lead you to the place where he is, an everlasting home that even to this day he's still at work preparing just for you. The question on the table this morning is, are you ready to go home?